Welcome to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. I'm Enrique Alvarez, your host, and today we have an amazing show. It's really incredible. We have a very, very interesting person with us today, a very renowned leader that has made a big difference in his community and around the world, and we have the privilege of having here with us today. But before that, I also have Matilda, my co-host for the day and a really good friend. Matilda, how are you doing? I'm feeling great, Enrique, and I'm very excited about this. Thank you. How are you? It's great. It's been it's been a really a good start of uh, uh, a good start of the week, and and I think we're super happy to get a chance to talk to to our guests today. I, I'm hoping that everyone's going to like it and enjoy it as much as we have. Just judging by the pre-talks that we had before the show, this is going to be good. And for everyone out there that actually enjoys conversations like this and getting to know people like the one that we're going to introduce uh, to you, uh, don't forget to subscribe at Supply Chain Now and uh, just listen to this podcast in any platform that you hear your podcast from. So, and without further ado, today we have a very committed, very caring, smart, efficient, and just a very well-rounded leader, Matilda. This, uh, this person has been is the former Minister of Energy and Petroleum for Ghana, and uh, he's the four-time member of Parliament for El Mbele, and it's, again, an honor and a pleasure to have him with us. Uh, Honorable Bua, let me bring him in and welcome him. Honorable Bua, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here today. It's good to be here. Thank you so much, Enrique. It's, it's such an honor to have you, Honorable Bua, and we were just talking a little bit about you and some of your accomplishments, and I think that it's going to be one of those shows that Matilda and I will probably just uh, shut up, don't say anything, let you just talk about your story, because it's so exciting and amazing, and uh, it's going to be inspirational for a lot of people, I'm sure. Yes, it's, um, it's very exciting. I'm very happy to come back. Um, and to share my story with your uh, audience, um, I think it's amazing. But let me first thank all of you, especially the efforts you are making with the books for Africa and the impact it is having. I can't thank you enough. It's amazing. Well, thank you. And we couldn't do this without your support and, and your uh your team as well in Ghana and in Elembele in particular. And we will continue doing this. So, uh, so if you guys, uh, everyone that's listening to us now, we're actually going to try to increase the amount of books we send every year. The first year that we did this with Matilda, we sent one container, right? Matilda, full of books. Tell us, I mean, tell us very briefly, like the first uh, container and then the second, and then we'll just move right into the interview. So me, honorable. No, go ahead, okay, well, Matilda. You were the one that orchestrated yeah, it at the so, beginning. Yeah. So the first one was really amazing. We did a, a simple holiday party with one one container. We were able to support more than 6,000 children in the village. Um, and it was just amazing. The children did not even want like gifts. They just wanted the books. And that tells you how hungry these kids are for, for knowledge, for information to grow, you know. And the second one, uh, with your help, you know, Vector Global Logistics, amazing with the two containers that served, I have no idea how many communities, but probably all of Ghana with the assistance of Onogubwa. We did great. So I am grateful and honored and looking forward to our third container. I agree. <laughs> And let me let me add that now we've gone national on the on the effort. Uh, we are not only focusing on the western region. Like just last week, we did a distribution in the northern part of Ghana, amazing area. And uh, I think that uh, that is why I'm so excited. We'll share with everyone the uh, pictures and videos. And yes, this year the idea is to uh, to increase the support for Elembele in Ghana and again. Honorable Bua, your participation in all this is critical. Your leadership is inspiring to us all. And with that said, why don't we start getting to know you uh, a little bit? Tell us a little bit more about your background and, and uh, you growing up. Uh, tell, tell us more about you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, as you know, I'm Emmanuel Kofibua. I, I was born to a small town postmaster, Mr. Benjamin Boa and the mother Mary Boa. My father died when I was only seven years old. And, um, you know, my mother never went to school. So 
It so happened that when my father died as a postmaster, all the privileges of work, government, bungalow, everything came to a halt. And so suddenly my mother and five of our siblings found ourselves homeless. We had to move from the government uh, state uh, bungalow and um, that began the nightmare. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I have to say that uh, through it all, uh, the hard work of my mother, who was a farmer and doing everything he can to make sure we are educated. We did. I remember uh, one night when I was growing up, I saw my mother bend down as if he was praying. And I checked and I realized that she was crying. And I, I, I asked, I said, are you crying? He said, no, <laughs> he was not crying. He was praying. But really, she was. And you know, it was, it was almost two months. School had opened and he had not been able to send the kids to school. And I think he was a little stressed over that. That is how much this mother of ours uh, fought so hard to make sure we're educated. But it was obvious to me at that point when, when, when I got to that realization where I was coming from, and I said to myself, how can I let this woman down? And to me, that was very important because that night when I saw her bend down praying and I thought he was praying, I realized she was crying. I knew it was all about me. Right. And whether or not we could change that cycle. And, you know, so we continued on. I ended up being the University of Science and Technology. Honorable Bua, uh, before, before we jump into the professional career, because yes. it's equally important and exciting, I mean, I wanted yes. to have, uh, I wanted to ask you something. Uh, I mean, your mom sounds like an incredible yes. person, uh, hardworking yes. and committed and passionate and yeah. the cornerstone, it sounds like, of, of your family. But tell, what, what were some of the things that you remember about her telling you, like when it comes to school and learning and working and did she always tell you something that, that you had to do this or you had to do that? You would not believe this. Until I actually grew up, I never knew that my mom could not read and write. Because, you see, I would come back from school and she will make sure you do your homework. Have you opened it? And she will be sitting down with me and I will be reading, going by page, and she was nodding as if she was participating in wow, this. Wow, that is incredible. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, until I grew up, I joke about it, wow. but this is serious. She would be sitting down with me. I would be going through the exercise, one plus one. And she said, okay, is that? And she would pretending that like she's following everything. She would get up, go and come and say, where are you? Are you done? My local language. And all those times, I thought this mother was really checking everything. It turns out she couldn't even read and write. That's so that is how. Yes, that's how incredible uh, it is, you know. And um, I mean, I think that after university, one day I said, Mom, you know what I want to do for a bed? You need to go for adult education. I'm very proud to tell you, at least she, she can go through her Bible verses today <laughs> and, and make some, some uh, you know, she know all where the verses are. But through it all, I think she became very resilient. She also became very spiritually strong. And to me, that is, that, that is what led us through. And she was very prayerful. I mean, you can't stay in her house without getting up at 4 a.m. to pray. Or you won't sleep in the house. <laughs> she, sounds, <laughs> she sounds incredible. Just like so powerful. And I, I mean, this is, yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And, and you, you yes, were probably yes. still very young at the time, right? It was... I was very, I mean, I mean, we are talking eight, nine, ten years. Um, I mean, I'm going through all of this. And it was amazing. At, uh, at a teenage point, she, she packed me. My, my uncle, who was more of like a, a father figure at the time, said, you can't stay with her. I will have to, she has to come and stay with me. And reluctantly, she had to stay. She couldn't say no. And I had to go and stay with my uncle. And I'm telling you, those were terrible experiences. <laughs> so, Honorable, you know, can you, yeah. you know, there's a part where I think the viewers need to understand that in Ghana at that time, when a, a spouse or husband passed on, the family had also had 
the uh, the right to sometimes maybe take the people out of the house yeah yeah well, what happens what happens is that uh, once your father is gone uh, a decision will be made to see who is uh, resourceful enough to support and so you know the the decision was that uh, my uncle who was uh, at the time uh, doing very well a businessman uh, who was more of a disciplinarian she can bring up a guy. I mean, I mean, we have this view that it's difficult for women to really nature and bring up uh, boys. So if you want a boy to have the discipline, then the male figure has to be around. And that's really what happened. Uh, you know, it so happened that when I joined my uncle, who were three, uh, he had two kids, uh, a boy and a girl. Uh, it so happened that when I joined them for class i was uh, in class with the, his son but the son was not as academically good as i was and every time we've gone for exams uh, i would blow and then he would not do it and then there's something called common entrance exams i passed the entrance exams that takes you to uh, more of like high school right so you can basically move to high school ahead and my uncle will not let me go because the sun did not pass. Oh, wow. Well, it must have been uh, a lot of pressure, right, for your cousin, oh, it seems like. It was like. terrible. But there's something miraculous that happened. That my story of how I went to secondary school. I was in this village playing a ball, and I hit this and what, man. Which village? Was that Elembele or no? Not Elembele yet. Yes, in Elembele, there's a town called Atuabo, where there's a gas plant today. And I hit a ball, and this ball hit a man who just came out of a car. Guess what? This man happens to be the senior housemaster of a secondary school, a very reputed secondary school. And he, he sees the ball and asks me my name. And I mention my name, Manuel. Well, he says, ah, Emmanuel Boy. The name sounds familiar. Then he asks, did you do the common entrance? I said, I did. But my uncle said, I, should, I, I cannot go. He said, this is because you have scholarship. And that's, that's how... You know, I went to I went to secondary school at the second term when they've been there for almost two months through this this accident. Wow. <laughs> you would not have found out about this scholarship. No, or no, there anything. was no way. You would have not studied no uh, in that. No, I'm telling you, there are so many things that I can tell you. It was a miracle. I, think. I mean, I went to secondary school, and this man remembered the name because he had a list of students who never attended the first term and was returning our scholarship. Uh, writing back to government that these people did not make it to school. So he was returning our scholarship. And because my name is Boa, I was on top of the list. So he could remember it, he said. That's how I got a scholarship to do the secondary school. <laughs> it's incredible, like, how <laughs> things happen, right, in life. And if you wouldn't have missed that goal, probably, <laughs> playing football. I will tell you, I will tell you so many of that. I mean, that story there was over. I made it to the university with distinction, and then I go to the library one day and I'm reading through, and that's why these books are important. I walk in there, I see camp, international camp counselors are invited to the United States. <laughs> I read it, I'm like, wow, international camp counselors, it's just students, students who are in the university and that and that, and then I applied. Camp America. <laughs> wow. So you applied also out of the blue. What did you, what did you end up oh, yeah, studying? Uh, uh, yeah. What did you study in the university? I was, uh, I studied law, law. Uh, in sociology at the time. Yeah. But uh, I had a BA in law. Now this camp just wrote to me and I'm trying to follow our story. It's called Pitching Camp in Glenspain, New York. I'm going to go there to be a counselor for inner city kids from New York City. <laughs> wow. And can you imagine? No. I got the visa and came to New York. All ticket paid for everything. Unbelievable. And I meet these wildest of kids ever. <laughs> they changed my life for good. These were kids that um, faced a lot of tough challenges. But, you know, by the time I finished the camp, I mean, I was able to impact these kids so much that I was the camp decided to invite me the following year. And this time I was more like a, a senior counselor. <laughs> and they actually made me the representative of the program in Ghana. It's called 
International Camp Exchange Program. And I was in charge of recruiting international students to come to the summer camp. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, I was amazing. I became a coordinator. I was a student coordinator of the programs. And it was amazing. And it was uh, through this program that uh, I actually um, came to the uh, U.S. After, the, after university and went to uh, do my graduate program at the University of Maryland as well. Well, and it seems like the, the, the children that you, that, that, that you were uh, leading back then as a camp counselor were the ones that kind of showed you how important it is to give back. I mean, at what point in your career did you understand how critical just helping others and, and honestly, how, how good you were at, at, at making those connections with children and people in general? I mean, at what point did you start to, to see this political career that... Critically, critically. First of all, I learned that through all those challenges I was going through. You know, in all those challenges, my mother every evening will make sure there's extra food for other people who did not have food, even in all the things she was going through. And she kept reminding me that you don't get your blessings for all the things you need. You get your blessings for giving, for helping others, for changing where you are, for bringing value to wherever you find yourself. So is, is, that, is that a reason why it's still up to this day most when I when I come to Alambele, people just come to the house to just get food. It's just amazing what yeah that house was turned into. Yeah, she's she's eighty eight years old now. She's still cooking. <laughs> she sounds like a yeah like a force of nature. Like she's incredible. She's still cooking, and I mean I mean one of my longevity as a as a member of parliament. I said that she's probably the real member of parliament representing the people on my behalf. It's amazing. But then I, I come to the U.S. and I realize, I've said it and I'll say it again, amazing place. I started with Pity and Camp and I learned, even from these kids, how important it is to give, to support one another. And I also came and learned so many things in this society that it is not always government that transforms it's ordinary citizens bonding together and making a difference and imparted me and i've carried that everywhere i've gone and i think that the story about how i went back to ghana comes here you know i finished graduate school and i get a lifetime opportunity they are looking for only 30 people to be a senior level postmasters in the united states and here i am I have different plans, but I have a, a, a senior person who was in my class who really felt so strong about me to join the post office. He said, Emmanuel applied. When I applied, we were 10,000 applicants. And the interview took almost six, seven months. We went through a lengthy process. And guess what? <laughs> when I was close to being selected, I said, no, no, no. Me, in the final interview, I will be dropped because they probably have to look at me. <laughs> see my big accent. <laughs> but guess what? I was selected. And it was an amazing experience. I went through a two-year intense advanced management training program across the 50 states, going to, uh, you know, mail processing plants, going through administrative places, and learn the art of managing organization for two years. And I was certified as a, a senior level 21 post office. Think about it. The postmaster general is level 25. So when, when you, you start at 21, you are close up there. No, it sounds, it sounds like an incredible opportunity. And it sounds that uh, you were the right person to pick for sure. Oh, it was a big deal I had. If you could just summarize. So you, you learned incredibly a lot of things during that time. If you could kind of summarize it, maybe the top three things that you think make a good leader. Um, what, what do you think those, those three characteristics are for people that are listening to us now? Well, when when they, they, they tell you that you are leading, don't, don't, don't let it get into your head that you are somehow on top of anybody. You are actually supposed to be the seventh. You are actually being selected to work hard and serve even the people that are supposed to, you are supposed to lead. And um, 
and make sure that the team is motivated and that there's always uh, a team spirit. Uh, and you are the one that should make it happen. You are the one that will set the tone uh, all the time, all the time. But making sure also that you think about time and make sure that you get things done when you have to. Nothing must stop that critically. And those are some of the things that uh, really uh, guided me in the post office. But interestingly, I, my first station was in Rhode Island. <laughs> Rhode Island. And the first time I walked in that post office, about 200 employees, I got to the front and I said that, uh, my name is Emmanuel. I'm here um, and I want to see the supervisor. And the lady asked, do you want a job? And I said, oh, no, I don't want a job. He said, what do you want? I said, well, uh, whoever is in charge, tell the person that uh, the postmaster is here. He said, you? Really? <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, so honorable. Let me let me come in quickly. There's a I call it as always a silver line or something beautiful here. Honorable's father used to be a postmaster in Ghana. Also, that's just the, yeah, the coincidences. Yeah. Your life has well, so many coincidences. You know, there's, there's so much. I, I said, you know, I said when I was doing the interview that my father was a postmaster. He loved his job. He used to work in the nights. And he died when I was seven years. And I, I guess I'm now close to being a postmaster to take up his uh, list. So it was really, it was very uh, interesting experience. Yeah, you're cl closing the, the circle almost, right? Making sure that you're yes. kind of uh, continue the legacy that your your father started. Yeah, continue the legacy. That was a fantastic experience. While I was doing all of that, I was in touch with the village. Every year I'm sending used books, I'm sending computers, I'm supporting schools. One day I took a vacation, went on holidays, and the whole youth had a demonstration that I'm not going back. They are not going to let me come back to the U.S. I'm going to be the next member of parliament. I said, why? Uh, the, the member of parliament at the time was so powerful. He was the deputy speaker of Ghana's parliament. And every time they've mentioned that, I said, it's, it's not possible. And this is really one of the lessons that I want us to know. I came back and I saw that the pressure was too much. I was doing well. I had bought my nice townhouse. I started my family. Here is the community calling me to come and serve. I thought about it. And I said, I may have finished what I wanted to do in the United States. I've worked through the system and now on top. Maybe it's time for me to go home and serve my community. And I couldn't tell anybody because they thought I was either stupid or losing my head. Every time I've told somebody that I'm leaving this wonderful job to go to the village and represent them. So I stopped talking about it. I just decided that if I feel so strongly about something, I just have to do it. So I just decided to do it. And I asked my wife, I said, you know, you, are, you should tell me that you support me. I should do this. She says, go for it. And that was enough for me. You've always taken the, the chance, right? It sounds like you're, you're a person that's always out there trying to challenge yourself. You're not settling. You always wanted more from school to uh, studying in the U.S., from going back. Yes, amazing. And I told her that, listen, if I go to Ghana, I will not fail. But in any event, if I fail, who brought me to the U.S. in the first place? Who got me up to be postmaster? I did that, right? So I can always do that. So. The, the, so, so I go to Ghana, but it was hilarious. I mean, everybody was, I mean, are you sure you can defeat this uh, Speaker of Parliament? Can you? I said, we'll do that. I went to every village. I went to everybody. And I said, I am not campaigning to be a politician. I'm campaigning to serve you. I want to make sure we transform these communities. Look at it. There's no street. There's no light. We want to do something with the youth. And I... Over time, I had all these young people following me. So, not to digress, there is no street, there is no light, and there is no water. It's very important, those three important yeah. things here. Yeah, well, we, we, we can talk about it today, but I can, I'm proud to tell you my district, Elembele district, is easily the best beautiful district in Ghana today. 
Well, and and, for, and and the people recognize that you were, uh, I mean, you were a leader, right? You're not a politician your whole life. You were not a politician when you came back to uh, Ghana, and you were you're serving people because you care about them. You left you left the U.S., right? I mean, you left this amazing lifestyle that you could have had for serving them. So I'm sure, I'm sure people people not only understood that, but I'm sure that people felt that you were honest and 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 uh, and were trying to help out. Let me, let me tell you how strong they feel about that. You know, on my fourth term, or as member of parliament, I told them I'm not running again. I've had enough. Somebody should run. And before I knew it, they had contributed. The young people, all the village, they've contributed, bought my form, printed my posters, <laughs> and they are campaigning without me. <laughs> that is inc- it's an incredible story. And so, and tell us, so when, when you... How how did you become the uh, minister of energy and petroleum for Ghana? I mean, that seems such a big jump again. That that is another miracle, I tell you. So I'm campaigning one day. They say the presidential candidate of my party, like the Democratic Party, is coming to Elembele. Area. And you were uh, you already the member of parliament for the first term or the no, second term? This no, this is, is before. A, before I'm campaigning to go to parliament. And in Ghana, the constitution requires that 40% of ministers must come from parliament. So when you become a minister, a, a member of parliament, you can easily become a minister. So the presidential candidate is touring our general area in the western part of Ghana. But he gets to Elembele district and his advisors told him that, oh, the guy is not going to win. He's a new guy. He just came from the state. He's trying to defeat the speaker. There's no way the speaker has money. And that's you. You're the underdog. That's me. The convoy must not even stop because he's not, the guy can't win. (laughs) So they get there and my crowd, we are singing. And then they say we should give way because the candidate will not stop. And something just got over me. And I said, no way. And I shouted in the local language, you know, when we want to agitate and get these guys, you say, Choboy, Choboy, Choboy. <laughs> you shout Choboy, then everybody will block the road. The car stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, they would have just kept going, right? Yes. Oh, they were there yes. was your... And guess what? The candidate who is President Mills, sorry, the former president, was sitting in his car. You see a guy in a pink T-shirt who is really coordinating that. That's me. And he called that they should call that young boy who is really causing the trouble. So he invites me to his car and says, I saw you. You were blocking the road. <laughs> the president of Ghana talking to you. Yes. He was the candidate. I said, wow. yes, sir. I was, sir. The reason was simple. These young people who've been chanting and waiting for you since this morning, 9 a.m. They've not even eaten. And it's almost 5 p.m. And you come and they say you won't stop. That's why. At least say hello to them. You know, he was so quiet. He got out of his car. He said, guys, let me. And then he went out. He said, Choboy, vote for Boa and vote for me. <laughs> wow. So he endorsed you after that first interaction. He endorsed me. He got out. I mean, reluctantly endorsed me. But guess what? When the results came out, my result was the national news. It was like the. I defeated the most powerful person in Ghana and I made news. It was all over the place. Oh my God. This boy defeated the speaker. He did. <laughs> I mean, it was so amazing. Guess what? This candidate called me. The president who came there called me and said, oh my God. You know, they told me I shouldn't stop because you will not win. <laughs> That's how I've won yep. And they were wrong because uh, you're not going to let them pass through an umbrella without him stopping. And he said, when I saw you, when I saw you and I saw your eyes and your determination, I told, I told them, this boy is so determined and I'm not surprised you won. When you come to Accra, come and see me. And that was my license to become deputy minister of energy in Ghana. Wow. Tell us what was, <laughs> yes. how, how was it like? I mean, for everyone listening to this, or at least most of our listeners, including me and Matilda, I, it's incredible. I have never really ever interviewed a minister before as someone that worked closely with the president. Um, how was it? I mean, amazing. I mean, this is a, a, a position and he intentionally gave that position to me. I didn't even care. I didn't know. But it turns out that this is the most coveted position 
becoming Ghana's energy and petroleum minister. Every powerful person wanted to become that person, you know? And that is probably where everything is. But he knew that he wanted somebody who is different. And, and I have to tell you, I've, I've faced a lot of challenges, but this was a very tough place where I became a deputy minister when Ghana was first dis discovered oil and was about to produce oil. And I had to lead Ghana for that oil production. I had to lead Ghana to build a gas processing plant. And at some point, there was also power crisis and we had to address power. I, I was coming to Houston. I was flying the world, finding long-term solutions. And today I can tell you, I, I am the longest serving energy minister in the history of Ghana that brought all the solutions you can think of. Power solutions, gas solutions, uh, basically stabilize our power systems in Ghana. Oh, well, let me ask you, did you have experience before uh, when they put you there? Sorry. I didn't have a clue. So how did you actually, have? Actually, yes. the, actually, the day I was appointed, I had to go uh, and read about energy. I wasn't an energy expert, but it was easy for me because I was just going there to be a leader, to be a manager. And to me, that was what is important. I remember that I, my first meeting with all these engineers, I was a young guy who kept, you know, answering a lot of questions. So in the evening when I closed, I said, young man, you are not going home. You are going to sit in my car. Me and you are going to have some power, power lessons. And he became my tutor. And everywhere I went, traveling, I was with him. And within a year, if you're an engineer, you want to come and talk to me about power, be careful because I, I know too much, probably more than you. And that's how quick I learned. Um, it was a lot. It was a lot. But there was something very fundamental that I knew I had to do. How many, how many years I, were there, uh, Honorable? I served four years as the deputy minister. And then another four years, a new president promoted me and made me the minister. Wow and made me the minister. And so I served in that capacity as a minister for eight years. But as a member of parliament, I'm now in my 16th year. Wow. Matilda, go ahead. You want to take us to some of the more recent aspects of uh, Honorable Bua's life and then into the future with him. Sure, definitely. This is exciting. This is the, I think, Honorable Bua's first ever podcast in the U.S. So, yeah, we are honored to to have this wonderful conversation. Honorable, um, Tell us a bit about the Senior Citizen Center, the AYA Community Center, why you built it. And I know it's the only senior citizen center in Ghana, if not all of West Africa. Why, why, why that? Uh, I, before I built the center, uh, that had, I had done something that had taught me a lot of lessons in Ghana. And you are always going to be told that something was not possible. You are going to be discouraged somehow. Um, but you have to always be very insistent on what you believe and basically do not accept the status quo and uh, make sure that you can always push, push, push to the limit. And that's what happened when I was doing my first project, which is the mobile clinic, uh, trying to send mobile clinic uh, to villages. I, and I went to the health uh, ministry of health and they would tell me, oh, well, those things will not work. You need an actual clinic because we have insurance issues and your mobile clinic will not insure people and all of that. Uh, but in the end, I implemented that and we ended up taking care of more than 15,000 villagers uh, that would otherwise not have access to healthcare. So I, I went to a big compound as part of my tour. I thought there was nobody in the compound. I was living and I was hearing a faint voice in our local language. I am Miwakio, Miwakio, as in, I'm here, I'm here. We could hear it quietly. Mm -hmm. We go back and this old lady, easily in her 80s, is all wet. It's, this was around 3 p.m. She has not taken a shower. She had not eaten. There was nobody there. It turns out she's a retired matron in a secondary school. 
And uh, basically, in our settings, it is assumed that the social network will always take care of people who are old. So the first thing I did was uh, we uh, helped her, got somebody to assist her, but I went back to the health director and I said, I need a steady done to find out how many people are in this state of, this woman's state. And it was amazing. Found out that there's so many people, old people who have not even seen the light of day for so many lonely and neglect. And that is, I made a decision that I was going to do something about it. And I built the elderly care center. I started off, it was very difficult and I kept making proposals and get, trying to get support for organization to support. Well, finally, the center was built. And this is a day program where we managed to get a bus to pick them and bring them. Uh, initially, financing it was such a problem. Somehow I said, no, I can do this through if I can create a restaurant around there and make sure that I can campaign that anybody who is at the restaurant is actually supporting my elderly program. And it worked. And the elderly program has been the most successful. We've taken care close to 18,000 now or revolving elderly people who have visited the site in the last six years or so. And um, we have really, people that started the program, we thought they were sick. We're not sick. All they needed was to meet their own and talk about old time, all their physical, emotional, psychological problems were all resolved through coming out of their house, dressing, giving them some love, uh, giving them some help, you know, we'll bring doctors and nurses to come and support them. And it's been very transformational, very, very transformational. I tell you, I'm very happy to tell you that I now have two members of parliament who are building a similar center in the area. So, uh, um, and, uh, and it's now being discussed at the national level that the government will have to replicate my center in every district. And that's my prayer that we can replicate it in every district. Interesting. Wonderful. Because I have been a first-hand uh, visitor there. And uh, when I see the joy in the eyes of the seniors, it is phenomenal. So co congratulations. And I hope that the government will really take this up on the national level, like you say. And actually, actually, the last time I visited the center recently, they, they had done a song and were singing for me. <laughs> you should have listened to it. <laughs> That's nice. So they, they yeah. think they think that I'm going straight to heaven. Yeah, they think. So, honorable, <laughs> <laughs> so honorable for me, I, I look at you are a trailblazer because that is the kind of leadership that we are looking for for not only for Ghana but for Africa. So on the next, you know, when I think of another thing that you have done that has not been done in Ghana is the food bank. You know, I think if not only in Africa, I've never seen anything. You know, I travel a lot, but I haven't seen anything like what you have. What was the reason behind it? And what is the future of the food banks in Ghana? Again, again, I have said that to, to lead is to basically find solutions to pending problems. And that is really what the reason for the food bank. I mean, luckily for me, I have had a chance to be in the United States. And I have to say that I'm always very proud of my experience in the U.S. I mean, my experience overwhelmingly has been very positive. I've met too many kind people. I've visited the food bank myself as a student. And at some time when I'm broke, <laughs> get, some, get some few things there. And I've seen how it works. And so nobody could convince me in Ghana that the food bank would not work. And the whole idea was to make sure that we can get a place where everybody can drop food when things are okay for them, for people who are in need. Because somehow, someday, somebody will be in that position and also pick something at the food bank. Uh, initially, it was really challenging for people to, I mean, you know, I, mean I think that I fixed a date for people to come with a lot of food to come and support. That day was a nightmare. I had more than thousand people. Everybody was coming for food. <laughs> well, yeah, the need the need is is is, is big, right? And, and the idea wasn't there yet. And 
Yeah, and you know, I had I had started a food bank with 200 bags of rice and other things that I managed to buy myself. And then I realized the campaign should go on. But gradually, gradually. But I'm very proud to tell you, we, within this short period of last year, we started, uh, um, we, we saved more than 6,000 people really in need. I'm not even talking about people who were just giving out food, but people who were really sick at home, handicapped, orphanages, people who were really in trouble in this COVID period. And it was transformational because every time we send food, to somebody who did not expect, you should see the smile on his face. Yeah, I could imagine that because um, even here in the U.S., I had the opportunity to serve some food here, and I was surprised to see how many, so let alone a place like a Lembele, you know. So um, this is kudos to you, and then I pray that we'll continue finding great partners. We have to do it. I'm happy to announce uh, our one-year anniversary. And uh, we, we are doing that on the 21st, 5th of May. So we, we, we are inviting a lot of organization to come. We basically have to stop the food bank again for this year. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, festivities. We will celebrate it. We will have people who have benefited talk about their story and how, uh, what this has done for them. So it will be very beautiful. But the food bank has been very transformational as well. Definitely. I'd love to share some of your stories after with the videos. Yes. If you can share that with yes, us. Please. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I think that I will leave the a lot of the videos of uh, the of the elderly care center and the food bank and all of the experiences. Yes, we will and we will add all those links and uh, pictures, videos and everything else to the interview when we post it. And thank you once again for doing it because it sounds that it's going to be, as you mentioned, very transformational. And it's definitely something that we should all be working together on. The, the, the next topic you are probably coming on, oh, but my I'm next thing that I'm excited about is your books, the books. <laughs> we were just going to talk about the books uh, just now. So thanks for bringing it up. And and for you, you're a big advocate of education in general. And, and it's clear and we now understand why. It is the reason why, I'm sitting right? here, Enrique. It is the reason I'm sitting here talking to you. I probably will have been maybe dead or something. Education is the reason I'm sitting here. Books is the reason I'm sitting here. I picked a book called John Plowman Talk. John Plowman Talk. I don't know where I found the book. I found it somewhere, somebody's. And I, I kept the book. And I have to tell you, all the books that I read kept telling me that there had to be something bigger than where I was in that village. <laughs> the world must be bigger. And I always knew that I had to reach and work hard. And if I do... I'll get to that world. And I, I'm happy I did. What do you, so what can you say about the partnership that we now have with uh, Books for Africa? I think you have gotten to know Books for Africa a little bit better as an organization. Uh, they're providing a lot of books to a lot of different places in Africa. And they've started this partnership with us and with you. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to, to share or tell them? Uh, this is uh, different in the sense that, you know, it used to be they'll bring books, yes, the books will not be sent to the people who actually need it. But what we are doing with you is that we are able to send the books to the schools. For example, we are able to go to the education director in the district and tell them about the books we brought and listen to their needs. Oh, we, we, uh, our scores are really suffering in math and English. And if we can get math and English, and science books, that's what it's worth. And that's the type of books we will send to them. So the books we are sending to the schools are very relevant to the challenges they have. And it's really welcomed and it is really making a difference in the results they are having. And that's what I'm excited about. Because it is not really fair for, for example, my focus is sending these books to the remote villages. This uh, students often do not have the right teachers, do not have the right infrastructure, do not have the right uh, books. Yet they are supposed to compete with the same people in the cities, write the same exams. And often you will realize that some of them will not make it, even though they are very smart. 
And all these books are doing is giving them a level playing field, an opportunity. That's that's all that's all anyone needs, right? Just an opportunity and just make it fair opportunity. Because if you're right, there's a lot of disadvantages. There's a lot of privilege everywhere in the world. And if we could just hopefully give opportunity to people, we can make this. And I look at me and look at myself and I'm saying that while I was in the village, if I did not get a chance to read these books, where would I be? And so getting these books back to this uh, less privilege in these villages is really why I'm so excited. And that's why I'm going to work with you until the book reaches a lot of these places. We're super Africa. excited to for this partnership and also Books for Africa, which we thank a lot for their partnership. And, thank you. and we will continue you. to work uh, with you and your team and Matilda and everyone because this is definitely a very important way of making a positive impact in the world. I'm so grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful. So, Matilda, go ahead. So thank you. Thank you. And, and Enrique, every time I kind of take vector from because you really push this to, to, to be initiated with Vector Global Logistics. So I'm really, really humbled every time I talk about the partnership between Vector Global Logistics and Honorable Boa. It is something that I feel every African leader should know and should be part of it and also support Vector uh, Global Logistics because it is that support that allows us to do what we do. So Honorable, from then on, what is the one most important thing that you wish all African leaders could do or should do for their communities. <laughs> I'm putting you on the what, spot. I mean, don't put me on the spot. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a that, tough question to ask. I think that I think that my answer is this: all the big things we are doing, it boils down to people, people, people. We must really translate everything we are doing into and ask the question whether it's impacting positively on our people's lives. It is in the final analysis, the bread and butter issues that matter. Whether or not a child that is born in a trouble, my village, today will get a chance, if he works hard, to be a minister in Ghana, will get a chance to succeed. Give him a fair shot. And I think that that is what we have to do and work in Africa, creating the opportunity, the environment that allows young people to succeed. God has given us our capabilities. We just have to make sure that there's an opportunity. And if we do that, I have learned a lot of that in the United States, seeing so many people who have come here with nothing. And just because they had the opportunity, they have excelled. I think that we just have to work to, to really create a level playing field so people can succeed. And I think that message, Matilda, it's probably for anyone anywhere in the world, not only African leaders, but really all kinds of leadership and people. Just quoting uh, Honorable Bua, create opportunity to let the young people succeed. That's that's the uh, incredibly wise yet simple words that uh, Honorable Bua has shared with us today. And just quickly uh, changing a little bit of gears here, um, Right now, uh, I know you're involved with the AFCFTA, which is the African Continental Free Trade Area or Center. Tell us a little bit more, and in particular, around some of the opportunities and challenges that you see facing the AFCFTA and and logistics, right? Because at the end of the day, logistics are a very important topic for all this to happen. How do you see that right now and into the future? Thank you. Huge opportunity. Let me tell you how I come to that. I am currently the leader on trade industry and tourism on my side in parliament, the ranking on trade industry and tourism in parliament of Ghana. And in that capacity, one of the critical focus is on the African continental free trade. This is an amazing opportunity for Africa to leapfrog, to basically lift our people out of poverty. And I think the statistics I've been giving all the time shows that um, there was uh, uh, $460 billion of, of trade that went on in 2019. And of this amount, the portion that Africa, within Africa, actually traded among ourselves was nothing to write home about. Less than even 30 billion. And so the question that we, 
we have to ask is that what can we do to make sure, I mean, we are going to consume, we are going to put on clothes, we are going to do a lot of, can we increase those volumes among African countries? More also, the question is, we have every natural resources that God can, you can think of, whether it's gold, diamond, everything else. I mean, I, I use the example of cocoa. Between Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, we produce almost 90% of the world's cocoa. So all the chocolate we eat in the world is coming from Ghana and Ivory Coast. Guess what? We, are still, we still buy a lot of the chocolate from Hershey's. I actually visited Hershey's Park, and I saw how beautiful it is. My, my point is that when do we get to that place where we are adding value to the things that we have comparative advantage? That, that will help create the jobs and allow us to uh, really, really empower people. That is critical. And so the African continental free trade, yes, it, we started at a time when COVID came and has brought its own challenges. But we have to start thinking beyond COVID and, and, and to basically ask the question, what are the impediments to this very noble idea? And there are a lot of them. One, it is very difficult, for example, to send money from Ghana to my next door, Togo, than to send money from Ghana to London. <laughs> it is easier to fly to the United States than to fly, fly to uh, Senegal from Ghana. How do we break these barriers of transportation within Africa? It is very difficult when it comes to energy. If, while we are making a lot of programs with electricity supply, a lot of the countries around us are below 30% of access to electricity. So we need to make sure we work within the continent to create these and, and, and shatter these bottlenecks and allow our countries to have the opportunity to trade until we do that. Now, internet is one of them. Access to the internet is critical. How do we make sure that we are investing in the internet superhighway, which is the key in this 21st century if we are to do business. These are the critical things that we as African countries need to focus on. There is going to be a after conference very soon in, in Ghana. I saw the Minister of Trade give a speech on how focused we are going to continue to be. But it is clear that if after succeed, Africa will succeed. No, it's uh, an, it sounds like an incredible project, and we would love to check back with you maybe in a couple more months once this uh, yes. once the uh, yes. this is launched. And and you're right, there's Africa is such a rich continent, not only with the materials but also with talent and people and creativity. And so so yes, you're absolutely right, and we look forward to kind of understanding a little bit more of what you're going to be doing and some of the things that you'll be leading. Tilda, do you have any question around this? No, so I, I see where in terms of logistical challenges, like Honorable just mentioned that, you know, it is more difficult to travel from Ghana to Senegal than it is to travel from Ghana to U.S. Um, what is Africa currently doing to alleviate some of these challenges? Yeah, uh, the African uh, Union has come out with a very huge uh, proposal. I mean, it's not even a proposal, the infrastructure packages. For example, there's supposed to be a train, uh, a railway line from Ivory Coast all the way to, to Nigeria. There's one that is supposed to connect Zambia to the east. Basically, an infrastructure network that will basically create the opportunity for Africans to trade and interact more and move. The free movement of goods and people across the continent is the key. And to me, that, that is a very good initiative. Uh, one of the complaints that I heard was being said was, uh, you know, it looks like uh, a lot of the financial institutions are not being very su supportive. And my question I have was that we need to strengthen the African Development Bank. What? You see, I think that Africa must begin, and we, and I'm, I'm part of it, we need to begin to make sure we strengthen the things that can help us within. I mean, I think we've looked 
to Europe for too long. And it is clear to me that Europe, the United States and others have their own issues and problems now. So in the 21st century going forward, we must begin to come up with African solutions to our problems. So, and that's why I think that, uh, like you said, the most uh, exciting or impact that you probably want to see is for the AFTA to move in the right direction from everything else that you have mentioned. So, um, and also, Enrique asked a question of the three most powerful things that you think should go into leadership. When you were talking the whole conversation, I, if I'm not wrong, so let me know, I picked up serve the people, find solutions for the people and be determined, right? Those are three <laughs> most important leadership attributes that we need to be able to move our people forward. Be, be a servant leader. Yeah, be a yes. servant leader. Servant so, leader. Um, now, this has been exciting. So Enrique, if uh, any other questions we have for Honorable Gusta so much, I think maybe we'll have to bring him on some other time. Uh, because there's so much that we need to discuss details in on Africa. But if not, maybe Honorable Boa can share um, information on how people can reach uh, you at any given time to partner, to support, or to work with Vector Global Logistics also for us to be able to continue doing what we need, what we need to do. Yeah. Yes, and uh, Honorable Bua, I think Matilda's right. Uh, you can with our full support, as you always have. But yes, how can... I'm sure this is going to be the first of uh, many episodes and hopefully uh, you can come back in a couple more months to tell us a little bit more about uh, the infrastructure packages the, uh, and the interesting developments that you are having not only in Ghana and Elembele, but also in the African continent. Um, if you can tell us or tell the people that are listening to you today how to connect with you, what would be the best way of doing that? Well, first of, first of all, I'll, I'll give out my email that can always be reached on yahoo.com. Uh, uh, we also have the ayacommunitycenter.org uh, that um, you can always uh, send information there. I also make sure that we have a, a contact to our office uh, that I will give up. But more importantly, let me also say that I think uh, we have very important things that we are focused on right now. As I said, we are celebrating our first anniversary of the food bank and our, our focus is to make sure that engage more and serve this time 12,000 or more people than we did last year. So it is, it's a very big goal. We are going to do that. We are continuing with our elderly care program and uh, we, we are continuing to push it. I think that I, we are starting an initiative and when, once, I, once I go back and when I'm starting this initiative, first of uh, June, and is um, reading with the member of parliament. And as part of the books uh, for Africa, for the schools, I've decided to uh, put a face to it by making sure that almost all the schools that have gotten this, the books, I'll be visiting and I'll be spending some time reading with the students just to motivate them. And I'm sure that Machina, uh, at some point, when we get enough of the containers, I think it will be time for uh, Ricky now to visit Ghana. I would love to go. And if it weren't for the pandemic, Matilda brings uh, chocolate back, and you have no idea how amazing <laughs> no. it is. We're I treasure it at, as a, yes, I never share it with anyone here at the origin. office. <laughs> oh, I'll bring you some more. I didn't tell me that. Okay, so exciting no thank you thank you so much this has been a delightful conversation incredibly inspiring and uh and again thank you for sharing some of your personal stories thank you for being the leader you are right now and we look forward to continue not only working with you but learning from your example so uh honorable bua thank you so much uh okay, let me let me say on behalf of all the faces that you guys would not never meet and see say thank you. There's so much you are doing indirectly to so many people. And I'm telling you, I'm sure that if they are all here, they'll be shouting so loud. It'll be unbelievable. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. No, thank you. We're honored and humbled by the example. And again, we will definitely would love to go to Ghana sometime soon and enjoy with you and the rest of the Elembele uh, community. Um, 
To everyone else that's listening to this episode, thank you for joining us. This has been an incredible conversation with the Honorable Bua. Uh, don't forget, if you enjoy conversations like this, don't forget to sign up for uh, Supply Chain Now, Logistics with Purpose. I'm Enrique Alvarez, your host, and I wish you all a great week. Mm-hmm.